When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is a crowd podcast. We didn't start the fire. The only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Hemingway, Eichmann, Stranger in a Strange Land, Dylan, Berlin, Bay of Pigs Invasion, Lawrence of Arabia, Scarves, Camels, Sand, Blue, 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 blue eyes of Mr. Peter O'Toole. Hello again, and welcome to episode 88, Two Fat Ladies of We Didn't Start the Fire, the history podcast that cracks open Billy Joel's rock'em sock'em, action-packed hit song for the most surprising stories of the late 20th century. I'm Katie Puckrick. I'm Tom Fordyce. Tom, how did we get to where we are today? Billy thinks it might have something to do with Lawrence of Arabia. Katie, another very, very, very long film. You know what? Billy's got three David Lean movies in the song now. He, We talked about Dr. Zhivago in the Pasternak yeah. episode. Of course, we talked about Bridge on the River Kwai. And now Lawrence came out in 1962. How many hours were we uh, strapped to our seats watching this thing? three and a half, I think. Three and a half. Cumulatively for me, Katie, because I found it impossible to watch in one sitting with a modern lifestyle. How many hours did it take you to get through? How many evenings? Well, uh, a few evenings. And I have to say that I slightly cheated with the help of fast (laughs) forwarding because I'm watching on my 13 inch screen on a laptop. I don't think David Lean intended. I mean, it's often considered, Tom, the greatest film ever made. But I would submit that whatever about that, it's probably the longest film ever made. (laughs) It's also one of the campest films ever made, Katie. We talked previously on fire about Ben-Hur, about the heaving chests and the metal breastplates of that particular epic. This is more sweeping gowns and headdresses. All for the gents. All for the gents. Yeah. Campus Christmas, nonetheless. Yeah, Campus Christmas. uh, I enjoy it. Also, something for the mid-century men to discover maybe a more tender, vulnerable side of themselves, giving them permission to walk a little more lightly in their loafers. <laughs> in their sandals, yeah. In yeah. their dusty sandals. Well, Katie, I'm glad to say that today to discuss this particular film with us is our friend, the film critic and journalist, Helen O'Hara, who joined us previously for Ben-Hur and Bridge on the River Kwai. Helen, welcome back. Is this film worthy of its billing as one of the greatest ever? I think it probably is, yes. I mean, you get me in for all the long films. like So, you know, I want to come in and do something in 90 minutes. But no, yeah, it, I think it genuinely is. I mean, I, I think when you see it on the big screen, which I didn't at first, it took me a long, long time to see it on the big screen. I just kept watching it just at home and stuff. 
it, it really does kind of blow you away, just the scale of it, the scope of it, and the the unexpected complexities of it. It's not just, I mean, you can see it as just a hero story, but it's not just that. It's got lots and lots of different layers. It's got lots of subtleties. Steven Spielberg thinks it's the greatest film ever made. Steven Spielberg watches this before every new film that he makes. It's like Does part he? of his ritual oh. to re-watch Lawrence of Arabia before every new film. Like, this is what I'm aiming for. Let's go do something like that. So I feel like, you know, I'm not going to argue with him. So before we get into what actually happens in one of your patented uh, 45 seconds boil down of a 59-hour film, <laughs> who was Lawrence of Arabia? He was a British officer who was sent to Arabia, who was sent to initially Egypt and then into the Arabian Peninsula um, during sort of World War One, before and after World War One, and he was. Uh, instrumental in basically bringing the tribes of the area into kind of alliance with the the British or the Allied cause during World War One, getting them to attack the Turks who were allied with Germany at that time, and sort of yeah was really instrumental in, in World War One policy in the Middle East. And what were his special skills? He could speak. Arabic? He could speak Arabic. He was familiar with Arabic culture, was very, very, very well educated, so he could communicate with them in their own terms. Mm-hmm. He'd been working in the area as an archaeologist before the war, so he uh-huh. had a little bit of local knowledge, you know, geographically and historically and, and culturally, that he was able to uh, weaponize is, is, is a harsh word, but you know what I mean? He was able to use that to actually communicate effectively with the people of the region rather than just coming in all jolly hop- hockey sticks and just assuming they'd kind of see the wisdom of whatever he was selling. And was he an obvious topic for a film almost 50 years, 40, 50 years later? Was this a story that had been doing the rounds in Hollywood and in British film circles waiting for the right person? Yeah, it had been talked about quite a bit. So his book was a bestseller. His Seven Pillars of Wisdom, which he wrote about his experiences, had been a, a big bestseller and had been uh, received a lot of attention. And there had been talk of, of previous adaptations. There had been a, a moment where it might have been made with uh, Laurence Olivier, which I think would have been pretty amazing, actually, but uh, in terms of casting. But the you know the financing fell apart a few times. It was difficult to figure out where to shoot it, how to shoot it, who would star in. There was a whole list of names that have been basically. If you're blonde and British, chances are at some point somebody <laughs> suggested you should play Lawrence of Arabia. I still think Tom Hiddleston would be quite good in the role. Oh, mm. a little bit old now. So yeah. what happens in the film? I mean, what doesn't happen in the film? It's fabulous. It's flowing. It's it's jushy. It's gushy. But let's have some plot points. Yeah. So unusually, the prologue is an epilogue. The prologue is is Lawrence's death essentially, and mm. then his funeral, and uh, a reporter on the steps of the church trying to get a straight answer out of out of the attendees about what this guy was, and getting a, a litany of contradictory statements, and no one seems to really know who he was. And, and they're also kind of trash-talking him on yeah. the steps of the funeral. Thanks very much. Some friends. The exactly. reporter also may as well be called John Exposition. He is Basil <laughs> Exposition's yeah. uh, brother, I think. Yeah. Yes, that's absolutely right. Um, and, and, you know, but it's an interesting, like, framing device for this kind of story. So then we go back to the young Lawrence who is, uh, he has problems with discipline. He is not well liked in the British army. So basically to get rid of him, they send him off mm. to, to deal with the locals. And and he ends up not quite by accident, but not, not by accident either, basically falling in with the right people and forming them into an effective military unit that actually does some good for the British cause or the Allied cause during the war. It's interesting that this 
plot of the film sort of ties in with some other We Didn't Start the Fire episodes. So I'm thinking about the Suez Canal episode and the Nassar episode, the idea of Arab nationalism. Mm -hmm. The film really nimbly, or maybe nimbly is not the right word to apply to such a long film, but it does deftly cover this concept that uh, the Brits thought, oh, we'll just gather up these various heathens and swarthies and make them do our bidding and get rid of those nasty Turks without considering that they had their own agenda and perhaps would band together and push their own needs and desires, which was to have an autonomous Arab state. Absolutely. I think it was um, it was ultimately a great failure, probably, of, of imperial foreign policy. It was mm-hmm. a great victory of military policy in the short term, I guess. But yes, they, they completely failed to reckon with the, the force that they were unleashing of, as you say, you know, sort of pan-Arabian nationalism. And, and just, you know, the fact of teaching modern warfare to the extent that they did to these men, the fact of arming them. It's kind of like the, the law of unintended consequences, you know. Yeah. Um, the CIA helped arm the Mujahideen against the Soviets. But then what do you know? You've got all these armed Mujahideen in in Afghanistan and that hasn't been super great maybe since, you know. Yeah. So there, there's always these unintended consequences and, and dealing with one enemy to what you could perceive as your interest, you may create a new interested party in the whole area. So Lawrence of Arabia is already a fascinating character. He's somebody who's an outlier. He's somebody who's canny enough to turn his perceived limitations or failings into strengths. So uh, as you said, he didn't really fit in with the status quo, but he worked that to his advantage. And he kind of was somebody who perhaps invented the whole work from home idea. (laughs) You know, like the real character was interested in pottery and that led him to archaeology, which led him to being fluent in in Arabic, which led him to just want to hang around in that part of the world. And so he kind of engineered all of this. And then by pairing Peter O'Toole, who's quite an idiosyncratic actor, with this character, it's kind of like a match made in heaven. But that, as you indicated, that wasn't always going to be the deal. There were there was other kerfuffles with the casting and, and other potential leading men who were lining up for that role. Can you talk us through who they were? Yeah. I mean, so like I say, earlier in, in its sort of incarnation, there had been talk of Laurence Olivier. There'd been talk of Alec Guinness, who, of course, is a David Lean favorite. He's in this film. Yeah. What but he was done? F- what have I done? <laughs> As we enjoyed him and Bridge on the River Kwai. But he was considered a bit old for, for Lawrence at this point mm-hmm. in his in his life. You also had, I think, Dirk Bogard was interested in it, at least playing it on stage, if not uh, on the film. It was just one of those roles that any actor wanted to sink his teeth into. Any actor except Albert Finney, who was oh. offered the role, was the first choice for this incarnation, yeah. um, but was wary of becoming a sort of, you know matinee idol and didn't want to be a big film star really necessarily in this kind of big epic at that stage in his career. He would have been totally different because mm. O'Toole, so this was a big breakthrough role for, for O'Toole, wasn't Very much it? so, yeah. He'd, he'd made some films but nothing on this scale. But he's so startling because his eyes are an incredible piercing blue. He's mm. got that, that sort of floppy blonde hair. But also, particularly when Lawrence is in the desert and has started wearing the local dress. He floats about like he is 
borrowing stuff from the dressing up box at home. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, he t- that's a good way of putting it. He takes such pleasure and playfulness mm. as an actor. It's really a lovely device mm. because beforehand when he's in his army gear, it's sort of ill-fitting and his trousers are too short and he's ill at ease and gangly and awkward. And as you say, Tom, once he puts on the Bedouin gear and the, the floating robes and the headdress, he seems like a different creature altogether, just fluent and fluid, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. I think that's entirely fair. I think he is this figure caught between two worlds and he's much more at home in some ways once he gets out into the desert and once he you know, is among these people and learning their ways. But equally you know, bring some of his own values with him. And so he's he's not quite among them either. Some of the things they do shock him. Some of the things he does shocks them. So he is always a little bit out of place. But yeah, you, you sense that he's found something when he goes out there. He's found some kind of purpose maybe or mission or something that, that kind of makes him feel more at home than he ever has before. Mm. It's quite stagey, some of it, the acting, isn't it? And I know this is this is harsh because we're, we're critiquing a very different era and style of acting. But the points, for example, when he is holding a gun and he's shot someone who he doesn't want to shoot, the way that he stares at the gun in his hand and then throws it away mm. is feels like you, you're watching it in the theatre rather than in the film. It's, it's, it's so dramatic. I'm looking at this gun and now I must repel it from me. <laughs> I, th- I mean, yeah, yeah, all right. I can't, can't argue with that. That's true. But I do think at least, you know, at least they're, they're showing these very fraught situations in a way that not every epic of the era would have done. Ben-Hur wouldn't have done. No. Yeah. yeah. Okay, um, there you go, because that was uh, <laughs> that was Charlton Heston at his most oak tree-esque. <laughs> exactly. Whereas I think this, you know, while there are the, these very stagey moments, and I, th- I think you're probably right to get the point across, there are also just like a lot of dramatic irony. So that man he killed, he rescued yeah. like a minute before. Those were, I think, two real-life incidents that were kind of put together for dramatic irony, mm. um, but two very separate incidents in real life. You know, that kind of irony, that kind of juxtaposition, position is what sets David Lean apart, I think. You do get as well, Kate, you get that sense from Peter O'Toole of his character developing and changing in the way that you said when he moves from stiff khaki to flowing robes, but also, Helen, as he gets more familiar with the horrors of war because mm. he's a little bit innocent at the start and then he is quickly disabused of the innocence of his role and he is forced to confront a side of himself that he doesn't actually like. Very, very much so. And I think that's really striking about this film. Like It shows you the messiness, if you like, of that. It's not a simple kind of boy's own adventure, which I think is how Lawrence had been perceived in popular culture to a great degree before this film. It's like, oh, he's the hero who went in and, you know, formed these, let's face it, they probably called them savages, into a group and, and you know, got them to help us win the war. I think that was very much the kind of narrative beforehand. And and as you say, you know, it's a lot more complicated than that. It is the toll that it takes on him, the toll that it takes on them, the complications it creates for the British in the future. It's it's far more nuanced than it probably needed to be, to be a big hit, you know, which it was. Um, it's It's got a lot of substance behind the adventure stuff. Helen, talk to us about the role of the reporter in the film and also in real life in propagating this idea of Lawrence as a boy's own action hero. 
Yeah, I think there was this, there was a hunger really for heroes, I think, coming out of the British, uh, of the First World War, because it was um, an ungodly mess. Like it was a war that never should have happened. It was a war with no moral purpose. Uh, You know, the the Second World War, we can kind of agree, needed to be fought. The First World War absolutely didn't, um, except for, you know, some old men moving pieces of blocks around on, on a piece of paper. So there was there was a need to feel like it had been for something. It was a need to feel like someone had done something good out of this war and that there had been heroes and not just muddy men in trenches. And I think Lawrence fitted that bill to an extent. This mm. was this was an English person who had clearly done something extraordinary uh, single-handedly during that war. You know, he was like a flying ace or something. He was... He, he, he managed to accomplish something that no one else could. And I think that's probably why the reporter is so hungry for someone to say, you know, he was great. I thought he was amazing um, and, and, and is so frustrated by all of these people going, well, he was a bit weird. Yeah, because you get the sense that uh, the reporter uh, in the film, Jackson Bentley, who was based on Lil Thomas, who mm. almost single-handedly created this this whole mythology about Lawrence of Arabia. You see how in documenting him and positioning him like, hey, let's get a quote, you know, at this at the height of the battle here, or let's position you in front of this train that you just bombed off the tracks. He enables Lawrence, at least in the portrayal in the film, mm. to kind of step into this uh, superstar role and help him brand himself. And you see Peter O'Toole, maybe against his better judgment, embracing the limelight and kind of getting turning into a little bit of a big head about yeah. it, believing the hype. And then... The Arabs around him almost imbuing him with a, a godlike status. Mm. So it's it's an interesting psychological look at how how you get corrupted by like okay you're pretty good at your job you're kind of popular with the other kids in the playground and you've done a couple of cool things and then in a minute you're kind of out of control. Yeah, you start believing your own hype. I mean, th- there was a great quote from one of uh, Lawrence's real life friends, wasn't there, about him? something like backing reluctantly into the limelight yeah. like he like and it's not quite clear from that if he if they mean that he was accidentally famous or if he gave the impression that it was accidentally famous I mean he obviously wrote the pillars of seven pillars of wisdom himself and there's a certain amount of self-aggrandizement in that but yeah I think there there is an element of I know I have done something impressive here, but then it going to your head and then becoming a corruptive, as you say, influence. And I think it, it's the dangers, isn't it, of believing your own hype. This is an advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Hello, Fire listeners. It's Tom here. I hope you're enjoying the series. I wanted to tell you about BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses in life, big and small. A lot of the people we talk about in this series definitely did. And as we know, if we keep those stresses bottled up, it can impact us negatively. That's where therapy can be great. Therapy isn't just for people who've experienced major trauma. It can help you understand the way that your brain works and why you feel a particular way. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's all online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. 
With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Fire listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com WDSTF, as in, we didn't start the fire. So, that is betterhelp.com WDSTF. Eat stress-free this spring with Factors' delicious ready-to-eat meals. Always fresh and never frozen, each meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. I eat flexitarian, so with a weekly menu of 35 options, there's plenty for me to choose from. So last night I had the Moroccan-style almond-crusted salmon. It was absolutely delicious. These are no-fuss, no-mess meals. Factor eliminates the hassle of prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. Simply heat and savour the good stuff. With over 60 add-ons like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and smoothies, there's plenty of options to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. Plus, you can customise your weekly meals and pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast premium meals without the need for cooking. What are you waiting for? Head to factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 and use the code WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code WDSTF50 at factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Let's talk about the production difficulties because it's not an easy breezy walk in the park Mm. to make a film when the park is in the desert, cast of gazillions. Uh, One of the details I enjoyed was that uh, Peter O'Toole was nicknamed by the extras father of the sponge (laughs) for putting foam rubber under his camel saddle, and all the Bedouin extras copied it because they thought, actually, I don't really need to be chafed in my coccyx region. So let's have a little bounciness. Thank you very much. Yeah, he he apparently hated he hated the desert. Yeah. Um, God bless him, and he became you know associated with the role for the rest of his life. Uh, yeah, he 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 was not fond of it. He apparently also fell off his camel at one point, nearly got trampled. Mm. Luckily, the camel stopped dead and basically stood over him and protected him. Aww. But um, apparently, the same thing happened to the real Lawrence. I read, which oh. is um, which is an interesting little you know echo. But. Yeah, it was it was a messy shoot. They were they were hoping at one point to do the whole thing in Jordan. Now, obviously, the most famous locations from this are still in the Wadi Rum, which is in Jordan, and it is the the filming location for everything. I cannot stress enough everything. It's this filming location for Dune, for The Martian, for several different Star Wars films, I think. Anything that's extraterrestrial. So it seems yeah. that Lawrence of Arabia was the only one that was using it as a, an Earth desert. Yeah, pretty much, because I think it, it's so recognizable in Lawrence of Arabia that if you're doing an earth desert, everyone's going to go, well, that's from Lawrence of Arabia. We've, you're seen, doing, this we've seen this before, you know. So you need to add in some monsters or something just to make it look, and, <laughs> look and different. So, and did they pretty much film it in that area or did they have to kind of pick up the pieces somewhere else? Yeah. Like, you know, there's a, a sandy lot down the road uh, just <laughs> outside London and we can just uh, 
throw in some mantan and and shoot some B-roll. Yeah, they did end up filming most of it actually in Spain, um, which at that time was under Franco, but it was was quite a weirdly popular filming location. You got a lot of spaghetti westerns and the like filming in Spain as well. Uh, I think all the interiors were done in Spain, a lot of them in Seville. So if you go to Seville and the Alcázar, that's basically like Cairo and Damascus and, and, and in Lawrence of Arabia. And where did all the extras come from? Because there's a lot of them. There's a lot of extras. Look, they were not terribly conscious in those days of, you know, racially sensitive casting, I would say. Mm. So a lot of the extras are white people with some fake tan, I think. Um, They obviously had some... Arabic actors, mm. but not nearly as many as they should have. And, and of course, you've got, you know, Alec Guinness, you know, blonde, blue-eyed Alec Guinness yeah. playing Prince Faisal. Let's get into this, Helen, because when you watch it, so I knew Alec Guinness was in the film, but it was still a shock mm. when he, it's very clearly Alec Guinness yeah. um, <laughs> with some brown paint on his face and also with an accent I believe he was quite fond of at the time. He'd been chatting to Omar Sharif, hadn't he, who's, mm-hmm. who is amazing in it. We'll talk oh, about him very in good, a, yeah. Talk oh, about him in a moment. But, but Alec Guinness, it's just a shock to see Alec Guinness doing what we would consider quite a strange Arabic accent. Yeah, he did. Look, there's no getting around it. It's like super racist by modern standards. Um, I think at the time it was considered almost a mark of respect that, oh, look, we've got this great actor playing oh. this role, mm. you know, rather than getting somebody that British audiences won't have heard of. But at the same time, to modernise it, it's, it almost trips you up going into the film as, as, a, as a modern person because you're like, this is now completely beyond the pale or should be. Uh, there's still occasional questionable <laughs> cases like this in Hollywood, but there shouldn't be anymore. And and it does make it very awkward to watch his scenes. It's not that it's a bad performance. It's just a performance that he should on in no way be giving. The beard looks a bit stick on as well. I don't know if that's Everything unfair. looks stick on and painted on because he's not remotely... no appropriate for the role oh my god come on David he also delivers his lines in a very Obi-Wan Kenobi way <laughs> maybe maybe this is what put him in George Lucas's head in fact genuinely this guy's good in the desert I, I genuinely think it, it probably did play a role in getting him cast in Star Wars you know um, but but yeah he's playing just, the long no, game just a bad idea just don't yeah we had Anthony Quinn in there as well also as a as another Arab gentleman mm. out of Abu Tai. that happened I mean his career is one where he played I think you know virtually every racial and ethnic identity going mm. that was kind of his niche for a long time right. he's Barabbas isn't he as previously discussed on yeah. the show yeah. He, yeah. He, he played a lot of these roles but Again, you know, his name is Anthony Quinn. There's a clue there, guys. Um, <laughs> but what about Jose Farrar as the Turkish Bey, who is the sadistic Turk who has his way with Lawrence, against Lawrence's will? So he's, uh, as it turns out, a Puerto Rican actor. And um, because he was better known than both Peter O'Toole and Omar Sharif, he got paid more than both of them combined. Plus, he had a Porsche thrown in to the deal. Did he? Yeah. Hey, all right. Yeah. So I didn't know he that. He was very, very strategic. And apparently Peter O'Toole thought he was the bee's knees in terms of acting. Well, there's a, a particular scene, isn't there, where, where Lawrence is arrested. Mm. And the Turkish Bay is examining him from a distance that makes it almost impossible to not imagine they're about to kiss. Uh, he gets so <laughs> close to him. 
And then he has Lawrence strapped to a table and whipped, and he watches it from behind a sort of partly closed door. Oh, that is really kinky. That's actually the dirty part. Because he's kind of just being a voyeur on a scenario that he's already set up. I mean, it's extremely fetishy. And in fact, this brings me to uh, when I was thinking about having this conversation with you guys, I thought, oh, I'm going to talk to Helen. What are my questions? It's basically the same three questions I had for you on the last two (laughs) fires, uh, Bridge on the River Kwai and Ben her yeah. uh, number one does the movie have to be so long number two how fabulous are the hair and costumes kudos to the wardrobe department and number three could this movie be any gayer yeah it's it 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 would have to be pretty explicit I think to be more gay than it is <laughs> yes and I and, you know David and Lawrence Lee, was considered was he so there's still gay, there's or? still some debate among historians there's not as much as there is for for some char- like some figures in history, there's a lot of debate over whether they were gay or not. I think the general feeling with Lawrence of Arabia is he was probably gay, but mm. there is still some debate. So I don't want to state it as a as a fact. Yes, but I believe that the the, the general thrust, the general consensus is yes, probably at least. Mm. And, and David Lean certainly. I think thought he was and and sort of built that into the story. It is very much deliberately here. I don't think it was necessarily deliberately there in Ben Hur in the same way that it is right. deliberately That's there. That's a good in distinction this. to make yeah. because certainly the other characters. When Lawrence, uh, we first see him and he goes in to report to a superior officer who takes such distaste to this eccentric character that he begrudgingly admits, "Okay, I guess you could be good for this mission, but I just find you repugnant because of your strange mannerisms." Uh, so there's lots of code for various homophobic attitudes. In yeah, the film. I think that's exactly it. I think that's it's. It's coded throughout. It's coded mm. in some of the relationships he has with the, the Berbers and the, and the people that he meets. And mm. I think it's very much coded into that scene. There's an element of, you know, it's this it's this central contradiction in posh British army types of the era, isn't it? You know, yes. that they all went to all boys schools. They went into this all male world that there was definitely some stuff going on. Strong moustaches. Strong moustaches, <laughs> you know, a lot of, you know, abuse of younger boys at, the, at some of those boarding schools. But at the same time, you couldn't possibly be gay. Yes. You know, so it's this bizarre kind of contradiction, this tension in the whole class. There's some great lines, like uh, the scene that I reference when Lawrence goes in to get his marching orders. He's told, you're the kind of creature I can't stand, Lawrence, like (laughs) creature. And then he's told, well, it might even make a man of him. It's interesting too, Katie, what the director David Lean actually says about about the that subtext throughout the whole film. He said, we thought we were being very daring at the time, Lawrence and the Arab boys. And he compares the, the heat and the tension between Lawrence and Sharif Ali, played by Omar Sharif, mm. to the chemistry between Trevor Howard and Celia Johnson in Brief Encounter. Oh, yeah. I like that. Great, great movie. Great because movie. there are ships passing in the night. Mm-hmm. You can see it, but they can't consummate it. Yes. Let's talk about Omar Sharif then, Katie, because he is so strikingly good, even against O'Toole, who is extremely good. He almost steals the whole picture. He's man candy as far as, I mean, that <laughs> it's fair. a whole, you know, Christmas assortment, that, you know, this this film. But it's a great contrast between them. Just yes. the, 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 you know, the, the very kind of dark, strong features mm. of Omar Sharif and then the very, very blonde, very pretty yes. Peter O'Toole. I think it's, it's a great contrast. It's a great sort of odd couple. O'Toole is so tall, which he shouldn't be. You know, I think Lawrence was 5'5". Five five, yeah, he was um, He's so tall guy. and so slim and so elegant. And mm. Omar Sharif is by no means, you know, 
big but kind of stocky and feels more muscular and it's gymnastic yeah and it's just it's just a great visual play yeah they're like snow white and rose red well they're also they're they're cast Lawrence is is for a lot of the film he's in white robes Mm. and Sheriff is always in black yeah, but not in a sort of white hat, black hat, Western kind of coding. They 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 are allies, you know. Yeah. They 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 question each other, they push each other, but it's a, it's a great relationship. It's so good. Is it right that Omar Sharif's character is the one who bequeaths the Arab robes to Lawrence for the first time? Like you've made the cut, you're you're in with us, you're one of us. Come to my side. Come over to my <laughs> side. So that is very dense and loaded with meaning. And then there's another point where Omar Sharif's character, Sharif Ali, offers Lawrence his bed in the desert. Mm -hmm. You know, he comes back from rescuing somebody in the desert, and then everybody thinks, hey, he's kind of a a cool guy. And then there's Sharif Ali going, okay, you can have my desert mattress. So that's quite significant. And then the most profound gesture and romantic as far as I'm concerned is when he says to Lawrence tribute for the prince flowers for the man and it's a scene at twilight uh, at the edge of of the sea flowers are floating off into the water under the glint of the setting sun and it's just so romantic and beautiful but cannot be consummated mm. I think it's it's that it's playing nicely into that kind of ambiguity of how much of this is, you know, Arabic culture or Berber culture yeah. and how much of this is is sort of a romantic gesture and I think it's meant to play a little bit both ways the to western The ambiguity yeah, is yeah. what is so tantalizing exactly. I think. Exactly. Yeah. So that's the romantic side of it. Um, can I steer this discussion towards the camels? Because <laughs> so there's many a camels. lot of camels. <laughs> so many Who camels. Who says that camels aren't romantic? Come on, Tom. <laughs> every seat, because you see camels standing up and, and sitting down an awful lot, Helen. Yeah. And every time you see them doing that weird zigzag, blah, 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 as they get, get oh, up. Oh, yeah. It's, it's kind of like pneumatic limbs or something. Yeah. And they're, yeah, their left, knees right, go. Left, yeah. right. Their knees go backward and forward. They look quite impressive when they are traveling at speed across the desert sands. They really do, because they are so lumbering as you say when they're not really moving and then you just see that those I mean a camel charge what the heck yeah it's it's genuinely one of the great action sequences and it's a bunch of weird looking animals with men (laughs) you know in in big yeah with with men in big robes on top but it's it's absolutely incredible to watch let's talk about further to the charge of the camels and the the dynamic aspect of of these big scenes what about One of the most standout scenes, as far as I'm concerned, which is much more subtle than a whole brigade of camels charging at you at speed. Uh, It's Omar Sharif's entrance as Sharif Ali. Yeah, so that was, I mean, it is one of the most talked about and kind of iconic shots of the entire film. It was originally nine minutes. Nine minutes? And David Lean said he lost his nerve and cut it down to a still whopping three minutes. And it is, as you say, it's, it's, first of all, you're seeing the horizon and it's like there's nothing. And then there's this tiny, tiny dot and it gets gradually bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And then it's, it's that stunning entrance where he basically just straight up kills a dude. And you're, I mean, you're you're shocked, you're appalled, you're horrified. What's going to happen next? You know, how is our hero going to get out of this one? Kind of a thing. Yeah. And then, you know, almost immediately he explains himself. Lawrence explains himself, and they and they sort of find a way to work together. But the sheer build of that and the sheer kind of um, 
mythic status that it gives him, yeah. I think, is, is what's really, really striking. And just the nerve that Lean did display by, by holding yes. the camera as long as he did. And he said about it that um, he was employing that Hitchcock technique of utilizing boredom to make an impact. <laughs> so uh, the idea like uh, the, the psycho shower scene where it's a bit mundane for a mm. while and then you know, a, vi- a violent yeah. stabbing in the shower. It, it lulls the audience like, okay, I think I know what's going on. I'm just, he's coming. Oh, he's still coming. And oh, he's still on his way. Not quite here yet. And uh, yeah, it really packs a punch. Yeah. And it gives a sense of the scale of the desert as well. And, mm. and, and I think that's one of the things that this film does brilliantly. And yes, that's also what makes it incredibly long and what might make one hit the fast forward button sometimes if you're watching it at home. But it, but it's about giving it the scale. It's about communicating to you how vast and empty this space is, you know, in order to kind of show how difficult what he actually did was. Yeah. And speaking of uh, the vastness, let's talk about the glorious score by oh, Maurice yeah. Jarre. That's almost a character in itself. It is, yeah, and it's it's incredibly impressive, and again influential on on pretty much every epic that's been made since. He wasn't the first choice for the music. He was, I think, quite a long way down the list. There was there was talk at one point of having a sort of um, British composer for the Lawrence bits and a, and a Soviet composer um, for the the Eastern stuff, if you like, and have almost a kind of contrast musically mm. between the two styles. I don't know if that would have worked as well. It would have been interesting, certainly. But, um, yeah. but yeah, I mean, you can't really argue with the, with the power of the score. Although, interesting, I was reading some contemporary reviews and Sight and Sound hated it at the oh, time. Really? What was their Absolutely hated beef? it. They thought it was just, you know, kind of overpowering, essentially, and too much. The main theme think, is so, I mean, you hear it once and it's mm, in your head. Forever. And it also yeah. ties in with Lara's theme, which we've, talked about on Dr. Zhivago as well. Yeah. What? How does the theme go? Just remind me the Lawrence theme. It goes... Haunting sound of the kazoo. Stunning. Do you think that uh, Maurice Jarre kind of was working it out, working out the kinks on his kazoo <laughs> before he committed it to the full orchestra? And he didn't have long to write it either, did he? Did he have like six weeks? Six or weeks, yeah. Which is which two is, hours of, of music is an extraordinary achievement. It's it's an amazing, amazing piece of work that way. Um, I know there are I know certain other composers who have done very, very quick themes, you know, and come in at the last minute and had to do something very, very fast. And I think some of them work best that way under pressure almost. But yeah, I mean, the, the orchestration alone of this one is, is you would have thought, a job of months. So it is really impressive. And and Maurice Shah obviously goes on to do Dr. Zhivago, but he goes on to do so many huge films, not only of that era, mm. but I was surprised he did a lot of electronic scores in the 80s, didn't he? He did things like Fatal Attraction and... Dead Poet Society and things like that. So this yeah. was the start. If it was the start for Peter O'Toole and it was a big breakthrough for Omar Sharif, it's also the making of Maurice Shah. Yeah, I, I think it's one of these, you know, rising tide you know, lifts all boats kind of thing. If you were associated with, with Lawrence of Arabia, then that was on your CV forevermore and you're never going to, you know, certain people are just going to give you a pass for life. And, and deservedly so, you know, like I say, if it's Steven Spielberg's f- favourite film, it's, it's done something right. Tom... Didn't your dad have some sort of Maurice Jarre connection, as I recall? Yeah, he did, yeah. <laughs> what was that? He hung out for summer with uh, Jean-Michel Jarre. This was a story oh, wow. which came out very late in the family telling. But they were staying together in a boarding house in Folkestone. And my dad casually dropped in, yeah, oh, uh, Jean-Michel, yeah, we're mates. 
<laughs> which, is, which is quite unlikely when you see my dad and his musical tastes. So this film is a huge commercial success, mm. Helen. It wins seven Oscars. It's apparently the longest film ever to win. It is slightly isn't? longer than Gone with the Wind, yeah. Get I think a minute that, and gone, a half. Unlucky Gone with the Wind. <laughs> Why was it such a huge success for audiences at that point? I think it's I think it's a lot of different things. I think it's the scale again. I think it's the promise of something inspiring, you know, and and exciting. My personal theory, if you if you look at, I, I remember once going through and uh, doing a piece on all the films that had broken a billion dollars, and all of them had a great moment in the trailer that gave you a sense of scope and scale and something that you had to see on the, in, on the cinema screen. And this very much has that. If you go back and watch the trailer, it has those sort of camel rides and, you know, everything else that makes it seem exotic and exciting and different to what you've seen before. There was, of course, you know, a certain amount of name recognition at this point for David Lean himself. He, he was coming off other hits. Uh, obviously, we've talked about Bridge in the River Kwai, for example. Mm-hmm. It promised great things. And then it did get, with the exception of maybe some of the sight and sound comments, very, very, very good reviews. Mm. And what about any influence beyond cinematically? I'm thinking about the fashion because we have those uh, soft, tan suede new romantic boots that Lawrence wears, the veil. I'm wondering if we saw any of this trickling into popular culture or is that just wishful thinking? It might be a little bit wishful thinking, but I always think there's always an element of the era when the film is made affects the costumes yeah. of the era when it's set. You know, you choose the ones that are palatable to the modern eye for the most part. Right. My personal favourite example of this is uh, Cleopatra. If you look at the Elizabeth Taylor Cleopatra, she could absolutely walk out into any nightclub in the 60s <laughs> and feel right at home. Sure. Uh, so it's not quite that anachronistic, but it is, you know, I think there's there's elements of finding stuff that will look cool and interesting and different to a 60s audience. But in this case, I think a lot of it is genuinely, these are just, I mean, those are cool clothes. Those cloaks, the swirl of them, yeah. the softness of the boots that you talked about, just the, just the sheer kind of volume of the fabric. I think we saw this It's kind of timeless. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what. I think we saw it popping up again in the early 80s with Spando Ballet and Duran Duran. And, I mean, David Sylvian from Japan, Nick Rhodes from Duran Duran, Bowie and Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence had that Peter O'Toole, Malibu Barbie, bleach blonde (laughs) hair with the tan look. You know, that sort of let's dance. And uh, how much of that is based on... A love, a continuing love of Lawrence of Arabia. I mean, certainly yes. in the David Bowie incarnation, I feel like there's definitely clear, clear influences. Yeah. But I think a lot of this, when it does come back around, does come back in. And even in things against Star Wars, come on, yeah. you know, billowing cloaks and, and, you know, sort of suede boots. The billowing cloak is very good for dramatic twists and turns and exits, isn't it? Yeah. Because it emphasizes every single motion. So if you if you leave a room in tight fitting clothing, you leave it once. If you leave it in billowing clothes, you leave it at least twice. At oh, least. beautifully put. <laughs> Swish. I'm swishing out and my swishy robe is swishing out <laughs> at some point 30 seconds later. Sachet away. <laughs> the only people, Helen, who don't appear to like the film are those who are related to the real life characters portrayed yeah. in it, who are all getting in a right old stink when it comes out. Yeah, they they were. I mean, because it does play fast and loose with with the truth. So uh, Sharif Ali is 
kind of a, an amalgam of characters, but none of the characters on which he was based were happy and all of their families complained and I think sued the company at one point um, as well. Everyone had issues with the way their family was portrayed. The brother of T.E. Lawrence, um, is A.W. Lawrence, uh, again, was outraged, campaigned against the film, publicly said he regretted selling the rights to the book. Yeah, there was a right old stink, but I mean, that's almost par for the course with with any kind of biopic-related topic, I feel like, and especially one where you are telling it in such broad strokes and where they did, as the filmmaking process and the screenwriting process in particular went on, they kind of got further and further away from a strict interpretation of the exact history and more into what are the themes, what are the ideas, what are the... What are we trying to say with this? Which I think, you know, it's what makes it a great film, but it makes it much worse as a T. Lawrence biopic. Also not big fans, I believe, were the Jordanians. There were certain countries that didn't even want to screen the film. Is that right? Certain countries, yeah. I mean, much of Arabia basically didn't Mm. ever end up releasing the film. It was popular in Egypt. It was released in Egypt and was a very big hit there. And Nassar liked it because it was a proponent of this Arab nationalism exactly. idea, which was one of his big soapbox moments. Yeah, and but the weird thing is, after having cultivated the Jordanians to a great degree, and, and as I say, you know, filming some of the film there, and, and managing to to get them on board for for periods at least of, of filmmaking. To lose their goodwill, I think, to that extent, is, yeah. is a, must have been a bit of a blow. But fair play, because you know it's it is a white savior narrative to to a great degree. It is this white man coming in and teaching Berbers and Arabs how to fight in the desert, which is, you know, a little bit of a stretch at times. Mm. <laughs> they definitely knew how to do that. So come on. Do you think he's a likable character in the end? Likable, yes. Relatable, usually not. I feel like you know you're you're in his head enough. I feel like that you you have empathy for him and you you kind of you feel for him when he does get captured and does get tortured of course but he's never quite on the same wavelength I think as you as an audience member either and I think that's as it should be like I said he was always out of place wherever he was in his life that's I think one of the great things that the film does it doesn't make him just a hero, it says, well, it's much more complicated than that. The more I think about Ellen, it is that nuance, isn't it, around the characters. So when we when we look at the um, Alec Guinness character in Bridge on the River Kwai, mm. he is so nuanced and we yeah. see his development and, and his flaws. And it's exactly the same with how David Lean depicts Lawrence. Yeah, absolutely. And and indeed, you know, all, the, all those around him as well, like Faisal, I think, again, you know, he is... Clearly a hero, a leader to his people, but he also has, you know, some slightly less heroic sides of him. And I think that's that's the great that's the greatness of this film. Nobody is all good, all bad. Nobody is black and white. They're all covered in dust, if you like. <laughs> you know, so it's it just gives it so much texture beyond the dust. Um and so much so much to unpack and so much to chew on. And it's why, you know, we can go back, as you say, over and over and over again, because there's always something new to consider and always something new to unpack. And for Peter O'Toole, this would have been his big first splashy role, is that right? Yeah. He'd had some roles and he was doing obviously very well on stage. Yeah. But this this took him to a whole other level. And yeah. was he did he have difficulty moving on from it? What what was happening to him next in his career? I think he basically went straight back to stage. If you mm. look, his next film was, I think, 1964. So he had a little bit of a break mm. uh, where he was basically on stage. That was where his focus had been prior to this and I think remained for a long time. I think he was always not quite a reluctant movie star because I think he quite liked it. But, you know, <laughs> he was... Um, 
He was also havoc, of course. If you've ever read anything about him, he was he was a drunk. He well, I was, was wondering what he was like at this point. But had he gone the full oh, O'Toole at this point? Maybe not full O'Toole, because, like as I say, it was his first big film, and you know, I think there was an element of wanting to do it. Well, there was, of course, an element of wanting to do it. Well, he was professional enough for that, but he wasn't quite the Hellraiser he'd become. But he was still not the easiest man in the world, I think, to to wrangle. Where does he rank on the Hellraiser index? He's very high. He's not quite Oliver Reed. Harris? Where does Harris rank? The on three that? of them are pretty close together. They, I mean, they, they did used to hang <laughs> out together, Harrison. of course. Yeah, oh. Richard Harrison. Yeah, I mean, they're all probably above Richard Burton, who was also a Hellraiser. So <laughs> it was it was a it was a heady time for those guys. The races of hell. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a friend of mine, Guy Pratt who is a very talented musician and raconteur. His dad was Mike Pratt, who starred in Randall and Hopkirk Deceased, which was a British television show about a a detective duo, one living, one a ghost. And uh, Guy Pratt talks about waking up uh, in the middle of the night as a child and going out to the living room, both his parents were actors, in mm-hmm. fact, and there was a, a heap of a man crumpled up on the sofa, and he ran in alarmed to his parents saying, Mummy, Daddy, there's a tramp uh, in the front room. <laughs> and it turned out it was Peter O'Toole. <laughs> I, I mean, from the stories I've heard, that would be absolutely consistent with him. I, I think it's very, very believable. Is is it true? He's the one. Is he the one who was? He, I think he had a heart attack or something. He was in residence at the Savoy Hotel. He just moved in there and lived there. And he had, I don't know if it was a, a minor heart attack or or something. He was basically carried out in an ambulance at one point. Oh. And they were carrying him out with the ambulance crew. And of course, a crowd assembled outside the Savoy Grill as he was carried out. And he apparently took the oxygen mask off his face and turned and went, "Don't." Have the fish. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think we would recommend this film to listeners of this podcast, Katie, who may not have experienced its full breadth, depth and size? Yeah, I, um, aside from my blasphemous fast forwarding, but that was just because I was trying (laughs) to get through all my homework. I would absolutely recommend unclenching your hindquarters, sitting down, plunking yourself in front of a screen, the bigger, the better. And just mainlining this thing because it is a glory and it is just a testament to filmmaking, storytelling and masculine beauty. <laughs> I think that's fair. I, I uh, This was the last film I saw in a cinema before lockdown uh, oh. in 2020. And I am I'm so glad I finally saw it on the big screen because mm. it is a different experience. So if it's on anywhere near you, if there's any kind of repertory cinema that might have it on, it is really, really worth a day trip. You know, take a snack. Get up and stretch your legs at the intermission, <laughs> but but really, it is worth seeing on the big screen. In, if you can. Insert a catheter if need be. <laughs> well, Helen O'Hara, thank you so much. This has been another fabulous discussion. Pleasure as always. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to sixty percent on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hello. This is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present 
If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. I went on a full T.E. Lawrence study mission. Did you? Uh, went to his home in Clouds Hill, which is a lovely olden days cottage deep in the wilds of Dorset. It's Ooh. where he um, he was sort of working for the military. He was in the army down the road, but he basically just hung out in his cottage and listened to music. He had a groovy little phonogram with a, a big horn <laughs> coming out of it. Then we'll ha- talk about big horns after the <laughs> subtext we've been discussing, Katie. <laughs> he had uh, his reading room had a, a bed in the middle of it that he didn't actually sleep in. It was just for hanging out, lounging and reading. And what he liked to do was... Quite better in vibe then. Kind of a Bedouin vibe. And he did invite uh, various army guys back to listen to music and discuss books. And his big thing was he didn't like to cook. He liked to open up a can of olives or anchovies. That and was he, tea. That was tea. And he'd hand it around. He didn't even sit down to eat. He would just prop himself up by one arm next to the fireplace and just eat some olives. And he'd, <laughs> he didn't he drink. He would dispense them into a nice dish. I don't think there was much dispensing. It's weird because he had a certain aesthetic. He loved pottery. He loved beautiful ironwork. He had some custom-made uh, woodwork and ironwork in his house. Um, He was much doted on by other writers and certain local ladies who were taken by his boyish good looks. He was on the small side. He was five foot five, as Helen indicated. But he had a, a leonine look about him, a noble look with his blonde hair. And so I think he did enjoy being cosseted and taken care of. But yeah, he bit it on the the road outside, down the road from his cottage on his motorcycle. He uh, took too sharp a turn. I think he was trying to avoid some people in the road. And uh, that was it. I think he was only a short way into his retirement from his adventures in the desert and uh, was not able to live up to his potential. It sounds, Casey, from everything you've said, that he spent the remainder of his life wishing he were back in those deserts of Arabia. Well, I'm not sure about that, Tom, because uh, I was chatting to some of the tour guides at the cottage, and I think he was suffering from PTSD after all he'd experienced. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, and certainly after the assault when he was arrested by the Turkish Bay, as we discussed, I think he really, all he wanted to do was just hang out read his books, think, eat some olives, listen to some music, have some good chats. That sounds like a perfect evening, Katie. Yeah. If you would like another podcast to listen to before Katie and I return to your is in a week's time, make sure you check out our other episodes with Helen, which are Bridge on the River Kwai 
and Ben Hur. And if you do have any guest ideas or maybe just something you'd like to tell us, you can contact us on email at fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk or on social media. We are at Spread That Fire on both Instagram and Twitter. And speaking of this, I have a listener message I'd like to share with you. Thomas says, I'm currently catching up with the podcast and I'm on the Eisenhower episode. At one point, you referenced the mutual friend who introduced Dwight to Mamie. My great uncle was that mutual friend. He'd gone out with Mamie on a couple of dates, but they didn't click. So he introduced her to his best friend, Ike. Wow. Thomas, that is a good insider story. Thomas, thank you very much. If you have an insider story to share with us, do get in touch. In the meantime, Katie, we are pretty excited about next week's episode, which is about... Yeah, 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 British Beatlemania. Oh, tremendous. (laughs) Crowd Network. A place where you belong. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.